Hello, and thank you for joining us again on our Gilmore Girls podcast, Coffee with a Shot of Cynicism. Gilmore Girls is the coffee, and we're the shot of cynicism. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Eleni. And this week, we are discussing episode 18 of season four, Tick, 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 Boom. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, uh, I had a topic I wanted to bring up that Eleni doesn't know yet, because she wanted, she wanted to be surprised when I told her I had an intro topic for this week. Um, so... Last week, I finished um, a memoir by Agnes Nixon, who was the creator of several well-known American daytime soap operas, such as All My Children and One Life to Live. So I had bought the memoir last winter when there was like another lockdown, and I was anticipating doom and was like, I need to buy books, because what if I run out of books? Which never, ever happens, as you can attest. Never. Um, so I was like, I need to buy books. And it was like $35 for the hardcover. I'm like, I don't care. I need, I need, I need to stay numb. So I just like, <laughs> bought a bunch of books and that was one of them. And I didn't actually read it until, you know, this month. So clearly that was money well spent. Yeah. That's usually what happens. <laughs> um, and it was only, I, 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 I only picked it up because I was in a reading some, I'm like, oh, whatever, I'll read this. So I really don't know why I bought it in the first place, but I ended up enjoying it because I wasn't a fan of either All My Children or One Life to Live, but I had, you know, a background knowledge of uh, daytime soap operas in the United States, and I found it interesting because she talked a lot about how, you know, she grew up, um, like, in the 20s in the South, um, and then, you know, worked her way up through college in the 40s and, or 30s and uh, 40s as a woman, you know, when it was more or less preached to girls to go to college but then leave to get married kind of thing and she you know wanted to be a writer she well she wanted to be an actress first which happened actually there's a lot of that with uh soap opera writers I found they wanted to be actresses and they went into writing instead and so she um started writing for uh, she like she started writing scripts in college and then eventually uh found work writing for Erna Phillips who was um like the mother the mother of daytime soaps in the U.S., she, like, pioneered the women-centered, the like, the female-oriented daytime soap that we, you know, knew today. There's not so much, not so many of them left now, but her vision, her vision was the one that created the the soap opera of the 20th century. So she was, so Agnes Nixon was, was working for her. And as I was reading, it just, like, struck me a lot that most, like, most soap operas, especially in like the early to mid 20th century were all like women like either run by women or written by women and at the same time it was like still looked down upon obviously because it was made made for and by women and then on during the day in the afternoon so like who, who like who really cared kind of thing but like from my perspective I'm like um who was who was doing this like who like who else was working as hard as they were like men were not like men didn't have to work as hard to write, you know, soap operas year round because soap operas don't go on hiatus like primetime shows do. So it was like just interesting to me that, you know, she worked so hard and just got like got credit for the end, got credit as a like like as a soap opera icon in the end. But like at the time, like worked so hard only to have men be like, mm, that's great. I'm going to take credit for this. Um, so just, you know, in terms of like present day feminism, I'm like, you know, you worked hard. And so it also made me think of uh, another book that I read a couple months ago that came out this year in March, I think it was, 
which was called um, When Women Invented Television by Jennifer Armstrong, the, uh, the subtitle being The Untold Story of the Female Powerhouses Who Pioneered the Way We Watch Today. Um, and Erna Phillips, who I mentioned earlier, she her story is explored in, in depth in this book. I didn't love this book in comparison. It's um, the author kind of works overtime to connect the women in the book that she talks about. And it's so she talks about like Betty White, Hazel Scott, and who else? What's the other one? Um, Gertrude Berg. So they were all like, they were all like female television pioneers, but I find the author kind of spends, Jesus. So he just fell off the wall. Anyway. <laughs> um, um, so no, the author kind of just works overtime to connect the stories and like the stories don't really connect in the way she tries to. But um, Erna Phillips story in particular was interesting to me because I don't know what it is, but anytime I've read about Erna Phillips, she reminds me so much of Amy Sherman Palladino. So that's why I wanted to bring it up because um, she like she worked, you know, even harder than, than Agnes Nixon did to become, you know, a female writer in a male-dominated field. And I wanted to share a couple of passages from When Women Invented Television, um, from the first chapter about Erna Phillips, which was called Predicament, Villainy, and Female Suffering. Because um, I found it just interesting in, this, in the, you know, the context of Gilmore Girls and uh, Amy Sherman Palladino's feminist vision. Um, so Erna Phillips graduated from Sen High School in the north side of, uh, of Illinois and then went to the University of Illinois in 1923. And so she too would hope to become an actress, but her college drama teacher told her she neither had the looks nor the stature to achieve professional success. So she set her sights on a career in education, teaching speech and drama in Missouri and Ohio before getting a, bachelor, a master's degree from the University of Wisconsin. After graduation, she longed to find a reliable husband like her father had been to her mother but her tumultuous love life instead mirrored those of the many soap opera characters she would later create. In her 20s, she fell in love with a charismatic doctor, eight years her senior, while she visited one of her brothers in Dayton, Ohio. She moved there to be with the doctor and then ended up accidentally pregnant and abandoned by her paramour. Um, so eventually she had requested child support and medical expenses through, through the court from the father. Um, that was or no, she only requested medical expenses. She didn't even request child support. Um, and she ended up giving birth to a daughter who was stillborn. And she ended up channeling that into her work, understandably. Um, eventually, she created several well-known daytime soap operas, most notably Guiding Light and As the World Turns. But before that, she had uh, written a show called Painted Dreams. And as the book says, it, it, set, it set a template for daytime soap operas that has remained remarkably intact throughout the genre's history. It focused on women and their domestic relationships and employed cliffhangers to keep listeners interested. Listeners, because it was a radio show, I should have mentioned that. Um, Phillips, who was 29 years old when, when Painted Dreams became a hit, had originated those hallmarks and she had found her calling. Her pay rose to $100 per week um, in the 1930s. But she wanted more after the success of Painted Dreams. Her relationship with the WGN network soured when its executives refused to try to make to take her show national. Furthermore, they informed her she could not do so either. They claimed they owned the show, its characters and its plots. Drawing on her experience from, from suing her former lover, she sued the station for rights to Painted Dreams. This time, however, she lost. She set a her suit set a precedent for the now 
well-known concept of work for hire. Creative works made for an employer belong to the employer, not the creator. So that to me, not only um, like Erna Phillips' writing style in particular reminds me of Amy Sherman Palladino's, you know, minus the pop culture fast-paced dialogue, but um, reminds me just of like when Amy Sherman Palladino kind of lost the rights to Gilmore Girls from the WB or the, the WB into the CW um, in the 2000s. Um, anyway, I don't really have a point with all of this. It just kind of struck me as um, interesting and in, in the context of Gilmore Girls and present day feminism, I just like to share these stories because they're not very well known. Very interesting. <laughs> I, thought um, like, I think I was just like going on on a tangent, but I just find it interesting. <laughs> no, that's fine. I don't know much about soap operas because I don't like soap operas. Right. Um, I think we've had this discussion before that the only soap opera I semi-watched was Passions. Yes. <laughs> but that was because everyone in my grade was watching Passions and I wanted to be one of the cool kids. Which was so weird, still so weird to me, because Passions was, like, so not popular. <laughs> Passions was garbage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was garbage. R.I.P. Passions. Um, but, yeah, um, I think regardless of what you think about soap operas, there's no denying that there's a lot of work that goes into them, right? Not yeah. just on the writing level, the producing level, like you said. Um, you know, they don't go on hiatus. They're on all the time. There's an episode every day. <laughs> like, there's a lot of work that goes in, not just by the producers and actors, and but everything, you know. So I think it is really interesting. Um, and I, I, yeah, they're they're usually seen as women things. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet women don't really usually get credit for them. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, especially in Agnes Nixon's memoir, she talks about how she was recruited, so to speak, by CBS in the 50s to, like, write and create this new soap opera. And she even says, like, through the lines, you know, there was no talk of pay or contract. They just kind of, like, brought her on for the sake of it. And she, like, loved to create, obviously, and write. So she, you know, jumped at the chance, but then realized later, like, oh, they're just taking my ideas and publishing them as their own, pretty much. And so that ended up being the, the the soap opera Search for Tomorrow, which was quite popular in this like 50s, 60s, and 70s. So she said she took it really hard when she was fired. Like she was fired, but she kind of like was forced out. She didn't really have it. Like she kind of left, but was also forced out. And so she said she took it really hard. But then once you know she found her own success with her own shows, it was like, see ya. <laughs> yeah. Um. And by the way, there's nothing new in that story, right? The story no. of women creating and men taking credit. There's nothing new there. Um, Taylor's as old as time. Yes, <laughs> you exactly. know, like it's not, it's not at all shocking to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I don't, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> yeah, in case anyone was wondering, because I think we, I think we've mentioned maybe in our first season, like when I was talking about how. Uh, I was part of like soap Twitter when I first joined social media. Um, like when I was in, I don't know, early, like I guess middle school as other as uh, other parts of North America would know it. But that that for us was high school because high school is grades seven through 11 where we're from. So when I was in like early high school, like grade seven and grade eight, um, I, you know, didn't really fit in. I never really did fit in. Um, didn't really have many friends at that point. Um, I just kind of stumbled on soap operas in the summer once, hid it from anybody who would ever walk in the room so they would judge, because I knew they would judge me for watching, 
you know, soap operas. Oh, what's that for? Like Bordeaux house, Bordeaux like house frumps or something. Um, and then, you know, just kind of started watching The Young and the Restless religiously. And I think it was just a response to, you know, kind of being bullied all the time at school at that point. And I took refuge in, you know, the zany, unrealistic lives of soap opera characters because that was that was much that was much better than my own life so that's why to me it's just interesting that people like deride them as I mean it is they are silly and frivolous but I think that's the point is that like we need that escape sometimes and I think that's why reality television has kind of become so popular because in like when 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 reality television first uh you know came on the scene like the in the 2000s with you know Survivor and then The Amazing Race and those kind of shows like that kind of marked the beginning of the soap opera's decline. So before that time, like everybody just needed that that release, that stupid stupid melodramatic release from daily life. I think that's what I think that's what I found in them anyway. Yeah, well, we all have our um, I don't want to say guilty pleasures, but maybe it is a guilty pleasure. I don't. Know I mean, that- I, w- I definitely would describe it as a guilty pleasure when I was fourteen. But like looking back now, like I was. It was more just like an. It was more of a, just a, an excuse to, I guess, indulge. I wouldn't like. I wouldn't call it indulging now, but back then I would have called it like I was indulging in something. I don't know to sound make a cliche remark like indulging in something that took the pain away. I guess like I just didn't. You know, I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. But when, but when I watched Young and the Restless, when I got home from school, binge eating cheese it. So I'm like, this is fine. I feel I feel like I belong here. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good right in front of this television. <laughs> Yes, so that's why I find it's just interesting now, looking back, uh, there's been a lot of books in the last few years uh, telling these stories of women, you know, working in the male-dominated 20th century, and it's interesting that we only are now giving them their credit. Yeah, well, I I believe when Amy Sherman Palladino first started writing for Roseanne, she was one of the only women as well. Yes. Um. And it's interesting to me that the only time, the only time that Amy, the only time that the writing, I think, correct me if I'm wrong if you know, but I'll Google it later. I think the only time that Roseanne ever got a, um, an Emmy nomination for writing Mm -hmm. was when Amy Sherman Palladino wrote about birth control. I think so. That sounds about right. Yeah. So it's always interesting to me. It's like you, quote unquote, let the women in the room, right? Um, and then you 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 let them stick to what you think are women topics. Yeah. And then surprise, surprise, they actually know how to write, you fuckers. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And especially, especially with, with Agnes Nixon on All My Children and One Life to Live, the whole, like, the whole point of her memoir in, the, like, the second half of the book was how she pretty much introduced like socially relevant topics to daytime because even before her show started in the 70s or like late 60s and early 70s she had written for guiding light and another world both of which both both shows where she had introduced like socially relevant and socially conscious topics so like it's just it's just interesting to me because I find pop culture is kind of just toss, let me not toss aside, but it's kind of like just looked down upon soap operas. But they've also been a medium where uh, writers like Agnes Nixon have been able to address topics that prime that prime time, especially at that time, was way too scared to ever utter a word. So right, 
it, you know, if you can like if you can conquer the, you know, the uh, 18 to 49 housewife demographic, then I think you can conquer anything. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Um, very interesting, Jeffrey. Thank you. <laughs> we can move on now. <laughs> we can move on. Thank you for giving you for giving us your permission to move on. <laughs> so, as Jeffrey said, today we're discussing episode 18, Tick, 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 Boom. It is so titled because everything is blowing up. Yes. Indeed. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, opening scene is... Lorelai, Jackson, and Suki in the diner with baby Davey. Mm-hmm. And Luke is being a grumpy pants. And yeah. I have a question for you. Please. Do you think it's surprising, after the way Luke acts, that Lorelai didn't know he wanted kids? Mm, yes and no. Okay. I find that, like, I find that in, like, in this scene in particular, it's just a bit of grumpy old Luke we can break him eventually (laughs) yeah I thought this was such a weird scene well I mean we we saw Luke get uptight about breastfeeding in public seasons ago like you have six minutes to eat yeah I know get like part of me is like he's probably still getting over the fact that he got cheated on and like all that shebang but part of me is like fuck you oh yeah for sure also Speaking of, um, you know, today you text me and you said that the problem with watching Gilmore Girls so many times is that you you come to certain realizations, right? Oh, please. Do you want to share my paragraph? <laughs> um, no, we're good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I do have, we will eventually. But um, I do want to talk about something that bothered me in this episode and I think was a missed opportunity. Yes. Um, it's the first time that we see Suki since they had their fight. Right. And I always hated how this is this scene is a really good example of that. But I always hated how in any show, not just in Gilmore Girls, but how something major happens with between two characters. And the next time we see them, everything's fine. And there's no mention of that. Right. Um, because to me, that's just not realistic. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you like maybe the implication is they got over it in their own time mm-hmm. or, or they talked about it like off screen or whatever. But to me, it, I think it just comes back. We, I keep coming back to what we keep saying about Suki. It's not important enough. No, it's really not. Right? It's not like it's, important. to. <laughs> no, it's kind of, it's not even fluff to me. It's just like, there's no, there's no even term that like I can come up with off the top of my head. But I find, um, like, like Suki in seasons four through seven is just no. I'm not into it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I find that like I find that like Suki Suki's character kind of expired in terms of being interesting or compelling after season two. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair to say. I um, I don't know. It's just I don't know what it is. I think. It's it's really like disheartening to see the writers using a female character for what what is sometimes a major plot point, mm-hmm. and then being like ah oh, whatever, <laughs> like you know, and then like discarding her when she served her purpose. 
Do you think this is what that reviewer was talking about when he said that all we do is criticize and say we hate we hate all the characters? Um, I don't know. <laughs> like, well, I mean, our, our analysis is valid though. So, like in this case, like I find it, I find we be, like any time in season four, and most certainly in seasons five, six, and seven, um, that we're gonna talk about Suki, it's gonna be like, oh, this bitch again. <laughs> Well, listen, that re- okay, the reason I hesitated is because in the, that review in the first place was a little bit all over the place. Yes. First, it was they don't even do analysis. And second was, why do they hate all the characters? Um, Because we do analysis. <laughs> yeah. And we have uh, notebooks full of analysis. Like, don't come for us. Yeah. So, I mean, my problem, listen, the reason I sometimes say I hate Suki is because and hate is the strong word, but it's because I hate the way they've written Suki and the way they use or don't use in this case Suki. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that has nothing to do with I don't know the way Melissa plays Suki. It has nothing to do with like Suki's quirks. Like it's just it's 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 annoying to me the way um, she's brushed off and is introduced only when they need something from her. You know what I mean? Like, it's like a toxic friendship, kind of. Yeah, I would argue that, like, the writers knew that they would have to give Suki's character a bit more substance going, like, going further into the series. Like, they gave her a husband and a child and then later more children. But I found, I find that, like, they didn't know how to find a happy medium between the two like they wanted Suki to obviously grow with the show and have a life not just be the quirky clumsy klutz chef at the inn but then as soon as they gave her as soon as they like tried to give her more depth while also maintaining her ditzy klutzy persona was like just didn't work what like combining those two things together was just like an annoyance to watch yeah and I think you know Maybe the writers just weren't equipped to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it it could have had something to do with time, um, meaning the the time the the time period in which to, in which the show took place. It could have had to do with like the skill of the writers. It could have been you know ideas getting away from them and not seeing Suki fit in there. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also given a theory as to why I think Suki usually gets the bad end of the stick and a lot of that for me has to do with her weight and how we used to view um bigger actresses (laughs) yeah Um, but yeah i just think like at this point every time they reintroduce her because it really is a reintroduction sometimes because you you kind of don't see suki for a while um in the later seasons and when you do see Mm -hmm. her something like this and a fluffy scene Every time you're reintroduced to Suki, it's like, oh, Suki, all right. <laughs> not invested. No, like, I, I don't think maybe that was their goal. But no, that's the thing. That's what's frustrating. And the reason I say, I bring it up now, and why I say I was frustrated is because here was a golden opportunity for these friends to sit down and maybe give Suki a little bit more substance. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, mm-mm. <laughs> We're going to have her with her vegetable husband talking about detonating bombs when a baby's cr- Like, you know? Yeah. I also just really hate that when a woman gets pregnant and has a kid, her entire personality becomes the baby. 
It's true, though, because especially when you compare, like, season four, like, season four or five Suki with season one Suki, it's just a completely different, completely different character. Yeah. So, you know, she went from being this quirky girl who, you know, loved her kitchen and experimented all the time and was, like, a little bit adventurous in the kitchen, you know what I mean, to being like, well... I got to go to sleep at eight because Davy had me out. It's like, you know, mothers, women have multitudes. Yeah. <laughs> They're not just like, oh, I became a mother now. Fuck my drag. You know, like, it's, <laughs> she's still a human being. Yeah. I would have to say that, like, the, the Suki we saw in seasons one and two, like, she was funny. Like, she was compelling in a way that was a testament to obviously Melissa McCarthy, but also to the writers just knowing they could have a quirky like a, obviously a, a cast of quirky characters, but like a quirky, klutzy chef who, despite her pitfalls, despite all of her apparent flaws, she was still lovable, friendly. Like you would, you would like trust her. You would like trust her with your life, pretty much. Yeah. Whereas season four, Suki, I wouldn't trust her with um my pet rock. Yeah, I was about to say with my pet turtle, but you you win. That <laughs> But I mean, yeah, no, it's 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 so ridiculous to me, and I think that's that's a commentary on how we view motherhood. Yes. Um, sure. I would like to think that it's gotten better, but you know, it's hard to say. Like, I think in some ways it definitely has gotten better. Yeah. But, but like, maybe not with supporting characters. I don't know. It's yeah. hard to say. Yeah, I don't know, but. I don't know. Every time I see a scene with Suki lately, I'm just like constantly frustrated and I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just to clarify, you know, we do love the character in general and we love the actress. So it's not not a not, not an attack on either of those things. But when we when we analyze individual episodes, we just get frustrated. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's more a frustration, um, you know, like wanting more for her and not yeah. seeing it happen. Mm hmm. So that's where my frustration comes from. Anywho, um, <laughs> Taylor comes back from a cruise and he has a toupee. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're going to get a hairpiece, at least at least match it to your existing hair. Number one, at least match it to your existing hair. And number two, maybe do it gradually. <laughs> like, get a plug here and there. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. don't just show up with a new full head of hair. I love how Lorelai is just, like, distracted. He's saying, like, repeating the same sentence. She's like, wow, I didn't get that. What? (laughs) I missed it again. Yes. (laughs) Not great. Um, But it leads to talk about a smell in the town. So Mm. Taylor says that the smell is coming from the garbage behind Luke's. Jackson said he smelled it over by gypsies. Somebody else says they smelled it over by the school. You know, like, it's coming from very many different places and we find out it's because Kirk was left in charge of the Easter egg hunt and forgot to make a map and there are now 59 eggs missing. Poor Kirk. Poor Kirk. <laughs> this episode could really be summed up with by just saying poor Kirk. Episode title poor Kirk. <laughs> yeah, I felt so bad for him. <laughs> Although can we be honest like Kirk what the fuck Kirk. Like, I'm not surprised at all, but also... No, I just not at like, all, but I was like, you thought eggs were just going to decompose without smelling? Yeah, and I just feel bad because, he, like, we know that he's given his life, he's given his blood, sweat, and tears to this silly little town. Yeah. And, like, you know, he just, like, he wants Taylor's approval so much. I'm like, why? I wouldn't want his, I wouldn't want Taylor Dose's approval 
in a million years, but yeah, Kirk just you got to give it to him. Yeah, and I think I I love how also invested he is when when Taylor's like, well, now we have to cancel the flower show, and he's like, no, <laughs> like he's genuinely upset. Um, but yeah, so they 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 team up, the whole town teams up to try and find these remaining fifty nine eggs. Um, some interesting choices to hide them in trees. Yeah. Like, where the fuck were the kids going to find those? But anyways. Um, I want to talk about the scene where Taylor's yelling at him. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know if it's just because I'm hormonal or, like, not feeling well, but I almost started to cry. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of, like, I was going to fast forward to that scene, but I'm like, mm, I, I feel bad. <laughs> it always makes me feel so uncomfortable. Well, especially because, like, there's many there's many problems with Taylor Dosey, and we've, we've touched upon a few in our four seasons, but it's just, what's not cute <laughs> about Taylor Dosey, nothing, he's not cute at all, but what's not cute, yeah. especially in this scenario, is that, you don't own the town. You don't own, like, the authority against you, your towns. Like, you, you don't own your townspeople. You don't own the authority to be a bitch. Like, I'm sorry. Like, no. Like, you don't get to talk to Kirk like that. And, and obviously, this is, like, it's not that deep, clearly. But, it's like, you, like, get off your high horse. Your high horse doesn't exist. Yeah, no. I was, I was really upset. I was... <laughs> Again, like I said, I don't know if it's because I haven't been feeling well lately or if it's just in a bad mood, hormonal, I don't know what. But that look on his face, I was just like, how could you look at his face and yell at it? I know. (laughs) No, all he wants is just like he would literally, if you told Kirk tomorrow, Kirk, the town needs a kidney. Like, logically, that doesn't make sense, right? How could the town need a kidney? But he would... He would... (laughs) Because number one, he's dumb, and number two, he loves the town so much. He would rip open his body right then and there and give right it to you. Right then and there. Oh, my boo-boo. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, eventually, um, they do find the eggs. Luke is the one that finds the eggs. Yes, God bless him. God bless Luke. And I think it was a nice, um, I don't know if this was done intentionally or not, but it was a nice juxtaposition if mm-hmm. I may say, between grumpy Luke, who's like, I fucking hate kids, get out of here in six minutes because they're sticky and they smell. <laughs> or a tender side of Luke, where he's like, oh, I genuinely care about Kirk. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I, uh, what I meant when you asked if it was shocking later when Luke doesn't want kids. It's like, mm. no, not what I said. What did you say? <laughs> I said, are you shocked? Like, does it come as a what I meant to say was, does it come as a surprise to you that Lorelai doesn't know that Luke wants kids by the way he's acting now? Oh, okay. I didn't. I'm okay. I misunderstood what you meant. Um, like that's what I mean though is that he comes across one way in one scene and then in another he's a I won't say a teddy bear, but he's like a Luke version of a teddy bear. Yeah, he is capable of caring. Yes. Um. But yeah, he just shows it in very weird ways sometimes. Increasingly weird as the seasons go on. We'll yeah. Get, we'll get to that. Yeah. Anyways. Um, all right. So then um, 
the whole bookcase scene happens at the dragonfly where Michelle and Dean are moving around this bookcase to try and find the perfect spot for it. And Michelle's being a little bitch because he has cuticle damage. <laughs> um, but that's not the important part. The important part that I want to get to is Lindsay stopping by. Yes. And Michelle having a crush on Lindsay? I don't think so. I think it was... A, mm, I think it's a bit of like, you know, straight men want to be with her, gay men want to be her. Oh. Like, that kind of paradigm. I'm not saying that Lindsay is that kind of uh, female figure. But um, I think I got a bit of a, hi, Michelle, as in, like, let's go shopping. <laughs> ah, okay. I also kind of got the sense, because, you know, when he's talking about how the deans of the world always get the Lindsays of the world. Yeah. I also got a sense that, like, you know, like, jocks getting the cheerleader kind of thing and Michelle being bitter about that. I think there is some bitterness to him in, in every in every scene ever. Um, and I once again would have would have to say that I think the reason I have a bit of a still still maintain a bit of a love hate relationship with Michelle is because I am him, especially in in this episode. Like <laughs> kind of a kind of a bit of I uh, you know that meme that says I'm in this photo and I don't like it. That yeah. kind of thing. like I see like I see myself being bitchy in him and I'm like okay I, I don't like this side of me. <laughs> got it that explains a lot actually <laughs> doesn't it <laughs> a little um but again i just wanted to know like why why give michelle's character so many stereotypical gay qualities mm-hmm. and then keep pretending that he's not gay yeah i think it's it becomes a bit more of an issue going on throughout the show when like you said, they provide so many like little stereotypical gay features, um, for lack of a better term. And then they not so much they don't define it, but they just like I don't know. They try they tried a lot harder in seasons one and two, I think, to like sell the idea that he was straight. And then I'm gonna say like seasons three through seven, like they didn't not imply he was straight, but they didn't like fight it. You know what I'm saying? Like they kind of they they left the door open, but they knew like that door would never be used. Yeah, I think in seasons. Yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> I think in seasons one and two, it was more um, like hiding it because maybe they were unsure of how the network would deal with it. Yeah. And then, as you know, as it progressed in the two thousands, it was more of like, well what's the big deal if people think he's gay and we'll never really just, we'll just leave it, you know, we won't say anything. Mm-hmm. It was more of a, like, how far can we push this kind of thing? Yeah, I think that, I think that's pretty much, that was probably the case because then by the time a year in the life came along, it was like, Michelle's gay for sure. <laughs> yeah, as a husband and like, nobody gives a fuck, you know? Yeah, um, it, would, it would be interesting to look, I don't know if, if you know off the top of your head, but it'd be interesting to look if we could find like, I don't know, like sources from the 2000s, like questioning Michelle's sexuality. I'm sure it would be very homophobic from that time period. But. Yeah, I don't. Uh, <laughs> That's touchy. I think it would. Yeah. Because people were generally awful back then mm-hmm. uh, um, in terms of sexuality, especially on a family network. Um, 
but who are we kidding? Like, there's still people that get upset, like, a Cheerios commercial if there's two dads. Like, you know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, people are just generally awful. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, to me, it just, it's like, I don't know. Either do it or don't do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, especially, like, as we analyze now, it's a bit, like, it's a bit frustrating in the same way as Suki's character is frustrating. Because, like, the writers... The writers want to give you, continue giving you these quirky, lovable characters, but they only go so far. And it's like, you want me to continue loving them and growing with them? Like, you have to give me more. Yeah, and it's also this thing, I just think for me, it's more like, it's as if they got scared halfway through writing his character. Mm-hmm. So, like, to me, I can just imagine them saying, like, oh, wouldn't it be great to have this character who's a little bit more flamboyant and he's French from France and he's very sassy and he hates the world. And, like, clearly he's gay, but then they're like, oh, but we can't say he's gay. But let's give them just enough to, like, be seen. And, like, for me, it's just either go all in mm-hmm. or don't do it because then it ends up becoming, like, insulting. Yeah, it's definitely insulting from our 2021 standpoint. I think um, the last time we talked about this, I said that you know in the landscape of the 90s and 2000s even before the 90s but especially the 90s and 2000s like um you know they they tried a lot more in those decades and they like they were testing the waters i guess a lot more and then so it's it's you know it's easy to say now in 2021 that you know either do it or don't do it because it's insulting because it is insulting for sure but from like a retrospective standpoint it's also like at least there was a crumb you know it's 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 sad because you know like queer viewers are used to crumbs and will take the crumbs like i've you know i take crumbs all the time but it's like i i'm also with you when you say like it's insulting like do it or don't do it because well especially because i don't mean to cut you off but especially because we know that in past television shows or past writing gigs she hasn't amy german paladino that is hasn't been shy to push boundaries yeah like yeah for sure in the 90s with roseanne when it wasn't good like you know when it was still taboo she talked about hating george w bush when everyone pretty much loved him after the surge you know like i don't when i think of amy i don't think of somebody who's like meek and does like does things half-assed you know i don't know what it is about this particular topic that made her stop and say like no we shouldn't do that that's where i think the frustration maybe comes from for me um because i don't think of her as you know again doing things halfway yeah i think for sure it's frustrating knowing what kind of writer and producer as she is mm-hmm. and then on the flip side of it you it's you you would have to then think that it's must be the network being scared of backlash from a you know like a family network being scared of you know puritanical response whatever whatever the case would have whatever the case would have been in 2004 we're in now so i don't know to me it's i understand on one hand how it can be construed as insulting to not go all in with it on the other hand like i'm i think i'm from my standpoint from my perspective i'm like accustomed to accepting crumbs because it's better than nothing yeah it's like 
I don't know. In this case, I think it would have been, been better to either do it or not do it because I don't see, like, in my in my brain when I think, like, oh, characters that I saw myself reflected in, like, sorry, Michelle's not even on the top ten, so. Yeah, but, like, do you think he's not in the top ten because there was a secrecy or do you think it's because of how they wrote him? How they wrote him. Yeah. And not, not to, obviously, and I'm not a black man and I think it was much no, more. but I mean, in terms of homosexuality, do you think that if, And again, like, I don't know, you might want to think about it. (laughs) Do you think that if they, like, said from the get-go, like, oh, Michelle has a boyfriend, let's say, season one. You know, season one where um, Rory's asking him to to, uh, proofread her French essay, and she's like, come on, I'll tell all the ladies what a stud you are. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, that message has already been received. If it had been changed to, I'll tell the guys what a gentleman you are. Yeah. And we just rolled with it. Would you have been like, oh, you know, I see myself sometimes in this sassy guy who's like, people are stupid today. I think for sure, yes. <laughs> oh, you know, sometimes, yeah, okay, like crumbs are great. But like, if you would have just gone all out with it, you maybe would have helped a lot more young gay people. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because even in, like, even in 2000, like they had, like they had Will and Grace in 2000. And that was like obviously that pushed a lot of buttons and that was that pushed the envelope in many many ways but at the same time it was more like that was more like the persona of gay people and less like the relationships so it was like if you give just give me like a person who we know is gay we don't see him like actively being gay until like season seven but if you yeah but if you at least gave me someone a character who was like no, like who was gay, no ends, ifs, or buts about it. That probably would have been more concrete invisibility for sure. Yeah, and it's not even about giving you a character that you know is gay, because I think we can all tell that Michelle is gay. It's more about like even if you gave me a character and acknowledged that he was gay without, you know, every second episode him talking about like going on. You know what I mean? Just have him like nothing happened. Say yeah, all the gentlemen love me, and that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, even that would have been better than, like, guys, he's clearly gay, but, like, shh. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh. I, no, I agree with you, especially especially because I think those sassy, uh, you know, gay background characters, there's not many of them. But any any that do exist, like, it's, you see yourselves, at least I, I can't speak for everybody, but I, like, I would see myself in Michelle if he'd been written that way, because more times than not, like, like the gay person is the one you know is the wallflower in the back kind of silently judging everything because it's all it's all heteronormative and it's all like you're just watching straight people you know smash their faces together so it's like that sassy judgment comes from a comes from a real place of like refusal of humanity in many ways so I think if they had written it that way yes the visibility would have been much more concrete Anyways, moving on. Moving on. Anyways, so to continue with the bookcase, Dean goes and delivers the bookcase to Rory's dorm because Lorelai thinks that it might fit better there. Mm -hmm. And it is revealed while he is there that he's taking a break from school. Yes. And Rory freaks the fuck out. (laughs) Yeah, so I've obviously seen this before. But, like, as I'm writing notes down, it's, like, it's been a while. So, like, I don't recall 
like everything from an episode sometimes when I'm watching if it's like one of my favorites I'll obviously no but not always so I was yeah. like is Rory, is Rory really being elitist and then the scene progresses later and it's like yeah she's being a snob never mind <laughs> I don't know if she's being a snob or if she's just like really caught off guard by the fact that like he was always supposed to go to school I don't know I don't know what it is I mean I think to get into that we'd have to like get into Dean and Lindsay's relationship in general which I did want to bring up in this episode because well first of all maybe it's not Rory being a snob but it's like Rory Rory's internalized misogyny is definitely rearing its ugly head especially in the grocery store when she and Lane are bitching um because at this point like Rory doesn't know shit about Lindsay's life so you don't really have to put all your hatred towards their their marriage on her like that's just internalized misogyny 100% misogyny card I'm playing it um but like on the other side of that I think we we didn't obviously get too much of Dean and Lindsay for obvious reasons because they weren't the sole focus and my first thought actually that I wrote down in my notebook for this week was the WB really had no subtlety in their previously on uh recaps because the entire previously on uh segment in this beginning of this episode is literally just Dean and Rory, Dean and Rory, Dean loves Rory, Dean still loves Rory, does Rory still love Dean? Like, it's, like, it's so obvious they're going there that even watching for the first time, you, like, you have, you have to be brain dead to not understand they're going there. Um, So you know that Lindsay, and not to say they demonize Lindsay, but, like, the way they, the way they position her as, like, season four comes to a close is a, is a bit interesting to me because... Like, Lindsay wants this dream life, and I don't think it's necessarily her fault that she, like, asks him to quit school. I don't think she, like, maybe she didn't ask him to quit school, but it was, like, implied that he would quit school because she wants this life and whatever. It's, like, from what we know of Dean, like, it seems to me that Dean would have, like, made promises he couldn't keep. So, like, why would you then take it out on Lindsay? Like, oh, Lindsay's being selfish. Lindsay wants this. Lindsay wants that. When more times than not i'm gonna say it was dean saying like don't worry baby we're gonna like have this great life and he couldn't deliver like how is that Lindsay's fault well i think two things so okay. i think no it's not that i disagree with you but it's just i think the reason why Lindsay wants this life mm-hmm. is because why else would you get fucking married at 18 right yeah exactly like what did you think was gonna happen at 18 yeah um you know, you obviously don't have all the answers when you're 18. You Neither one of you has gone to college. Um, we, I mean, I do think it's weird that she doesn't work. Yeah, it's like... I think I, it's weird that you get married at 18 and your husband has to work, but you are staying at home all day trying to figure out how to make the perfect pot roast. Yeah, it's to me, every single time I watch... The Dean, and, the Dean and Lindsay saga, like the Dean, Lindsay, Rory saga is, I don't get why Lindsay, I mean, I get it. I do get this, the, the, the core of it, but I don't get in general why Lindsay is so committed to being this like 50s housewife when she knows that like, I don't even know how to say it. Like she knows that that's not she knows that it's not a real like it's not a possible reality like she knows that like her 
her parent like she knows that her parents are helping and it's like she it's almost like she's 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 delusional that's what i close i'll just talk about that like it's just delusional because she would have to know that dean is didn't go to college she didn't go to college like what did you think was going to happen like you said what i'm saying like what do you think you got married at 18 like what was the plan like what did you think was going to happen girl delusions (laughs) yeah delusion choices um (laughs) But yeah, so I'm just like, I don't understand why, like from a writing perspective, I obviously understand, right? They're trying to demonize her exactly. They're trying to make it seem like, you know. But also, I think even they, they even fail at that. And we'll get into that on the season finale. Um, yeah, because they try to demonize Lindsay. But like I said, they don't they don't go all the way because they want you to like, they want you to for, kind of forget that Lindsay not existed but like they want you to kind of like just only focus on Rory and Dean not to say they forget that Lindsay existed because she does play a, a pivotal role in this storyline but it's just it's it's so frustrating like can can Dean just go like I'm tired yeah <laughs> I yeah well you know it's not gonna happen anytime soon but I just I so I definitely think that Rory's out of line talking the way she does in the market yes um you know, you don't know what, just from the conversation that she had with Dean, right? You don't know what they've decided in their marriage, whether you like it or not, they're married, right? And they've made a decision and that's none of your fucking business, right? Yeah. You know, so that to me was like, okay, I, I know we'd all be talking to our best friend about it probably, but it's just like, at the end of the day, you don't know what they've decided. You're not in their life. Um, number two, it shouldn't bother you that much. No. Um, because you broke up with him two years ago. Mm-hmm. And this whole thing of like, I just want the best for you. No. <laughs> like, it's no, listen, it's fine to say I want the best for you. Like, I say that all the time to my friends. I want the best for you. I get it. Um, I would hope that my friends would want the best for me. But you know, when somebody has made their decision in their marriage or even on their own and they're saying, this is what I've decided to do, it's okay to give your opinion, obviously. Mm-hmm. But then, like, you're going to calm down. Yeah. You're not going to yell at him. You're not going to make him feel like shit. It's like his fucking choice. Yeah, like, if it bothers you that much, there's clearly some underlying issues. Yeah. And then the other part of this is that I feel like when she's talking to Lane and she's like, Gene is so smart. He could do so much. Why is she forcing him? Why are you blaming her only? Exactly. Exactly. Like, the idiot that got married at 18. Yeah. To me, I think Rory is really showing her age in that scene where it's like that to me is an 18 year old who doesn't or how, however old Rory is now. She's 18, right? 19? Uh, 19, yeah. Yeah, so eight. So to me, that's an 18, 19 year old who doesn't yet really know how the real world works and how other adults' lives and choices aren't really your business. Yeah, but here's the thing, Jeffrey. Her, even though, like, like you're saying, she, it's a child's perspective. I get that, right? Mm-hmm. But technically, it's the right perspective because they're all fucking children. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Children. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and not to say like she's right. She's not right. 
she's not right. <laughs> but it's just to me, I'm like, of course she thinks that way. Anyone in that position would think that way because we weren't like, oh, I'm gonna get married in high school. No, you know. Yeah, to that's me, a good point. <laughs> to me, I'm more bothered by the fact that like, why are you so quick to defend him and blame it all on her? And obviously we know why, because she loves him, or she thinks she does, whatever. But it's just, like, to me, it's, why are you so quick to villainize her? You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't want to jump ahead, because we obviously have a lot... Uh, no, but I'm saying, just in the scene in the grocery store, it's she's making it very clear to Lane that she thinks that this is all Lindsay's fault. And if it were up to, like, if it were just Dean and he was making this decision by himself, of course he'd be in college, you know? Yeah. But this thing of, like, she's forcing him to quit. No! They yeah. make a decision as a married couple, and you're not in it. Yes, for sure, Roy's not in the marriage. We know that. Um, What I meant by not jumping... What I meant by not jumping ahead was I don't want to... Um, I don't want to, like, discuss Roy and Dean's reunion just yet no. in terms of why like you said like she thinks she still loves him when we get into season five like the first the first few episodes of season five i'll have i'll love and i'll have a lot to say about that as usual um but i love that dynamic because it to me i love it in, in an unhealthy way because just as the first episodes of season five go on it's like rory is realizing the <laughs> Like the error in her way, she's like realizing how badly she she made life choices. You're dumb, Rory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 an interesting paradigm because you know young adults don't know what they want. You have to screw up to learn what you want. Yeah. But you would hope that they don't screw up in such a massive way. But yeah, but Dean Forrester is not worth it. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> Anyways, um, just to put a pin in this topic, at the end of the episode, we see Rory driving and Dean um, stopping her and saying, like, follow me, we need to talk. Mm. Already there's shadiness going on. Yes. Because if you have to pull somebody into an alleyway just to talk to them. No, even if I knew you, I'd probably think you're going to murder me. No, but also, no, not that kind of shadiness. (laughs) (laughs) I I meant you're already, like, sneaking around around on your wife kind of thing yeah that's kind of you know what i mean yes i do know what you mean and i think it's wrong not sneaking around in the sense like he's already cheating because i don't think so but just like sneaking around of like you know your wife first of all he says that Lindsay doesn't want him talking to rory anymore um which which like valid Yeah, so here's the thing, valid, but also, this wouldn't have happened if you were older and had been very sure of your marriage, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, like sure. I feel like people have been married for 10 years and they got married in their 30s and are like, I don't want you talking to Rebecca anymore. <laughs> like, no, you're more mature than that. <laughs> like, yes, not in the sense of, um, like, not in the sense of, uh, like Dean and Lindsay being too mature, but like if there had been no unfinished business, like Rory would be like, okay, hey, cool, don't talk to me, bye. Yeah, exactly. So. Oh my God, it's just the whole thing. Um. Yeah, we we have a lot of feelings. 
you guys. I have a lot of feelings, but I think number one, he knows what he's doing is wrong, hence pulling her into an alleyway to talk to her. Um, to, be, to be murdered. To be murdered. Uh, in cold blood. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and then number two, I also just don't, I don't think people who are sure of their marriages and who have good communication in their marriages are like, I don't want you talking to this person anymore. That's not what married people not in real life, I would hope, but I think... I would hope, like, are you that immature? Mm, I, <laughs> I was going to say that, um, like, I think we do see a lot of, like, fully grown, older married couples on other television shows and movies who are, you know, insecure, and I don't want you seeing that person, or I don't want you seeing your ex, like... Yeah, I was gonna say like I don't, I'm sure that happens in real life. I don't doubt that, but at the yeah, same time, paternity court, like not. <laughs> I don't know. Like you, yeah, you watch paternity court. You know that happens. <laughs> yeah, but that's not indicative of real life. I hope. I would hope. I would hope, Jesus. Anyways. One last um, thing I have to say about Lindsay before we move on to uh, the uh, you know the Gilmore's and the Styles. Yeah. Is I think it's. Interesting to think about um, Lindsay's the polar opposite of the actress uh, Ariel Corbell's role in John Tucker Must Die. I think that was is her most famous, most well-known role to date, I think. I, don't quote me on that. I don't know much about her. But I know that uh, she was well-known in the 2000s for being in the movie John Tucker Must Die. So I was thinking to myself, like, if you re- if you, have you seen that movie, first of all? Yeah. So to me, like, that's a very, you know girls taking back the power of against a disgusting jock screw him um john tucker's disgusting by the way but i think it's just interesting that she the actress i mean we don't we don't see a lot from the actress in this case i don't think the the role of Lindsay had much substance to it no offense to the writers um but to me it's interesting to see her in this role which is like kind of you know, the subservient wife-mother role, whereas John Tucker Must Die was like, fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Those things are interesting to me. Maybe not to others. <laughs> um, moving on to the Gilmore side of things, the elder Gilmore side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so Richard and Jason are golfing. No, yes. first let's go back. Let's go back. My bad. Oh, <laughs> My no. Notes are all over I have a question for you. I have a question for you. Yes. Where did all the anvils go? So here's what I want to talk about about the anvil conversation. So if you guys remember, this is the Friday night dinner where Lorelai is talking about where all the anvils went. And she really wants to know where all the anvils went. And a lot of people see this as like a very pointless conversation. And Emily even said that this is clearly the most pointless conversation we've ever had. Um, But I just love this scene because it shows how comfortable they are with each other. Yeah. And they've come such a long way since that first Friday night dinner with the yelling and Richard falling asleep at the table. Yeah. You know what I mean? They've grown. They've come to such a comfortable place where they can talk about where the anvils have gone. And Emily's like, oh, my God. And Richard's like, oh, I don't know, Bob. Like, you know what I mean? It just, it may seem like another just pointless Friday night dinner with Lorelai rambling. And you're like, oh, okay. But I think if you look deeper, it's it's just indicative of what, um, how much their relationship, all four of them, how much all their relationships have just matured 
in a way that we never would have seen coming in season one. Yeah, I think for sure there's more depth there than you think. And I think that's part of Gilmore Girls' secret weapon is that yeah. in the scenes where you, they, you think are annoying and frivolous, like, for example, um, my mother hates Gilmore Girls, as I've said before, I'm sure. And th- this is a good example of a scene that would just drive her insane. Like, she would just think it's so annoying. And I think if you don't, like, if you don't appreciate that level of, uh, you know, both comedic and dramatic writing at the same time, yeah. combined with, you know, fast-paced, witty dialogue, that it's just, it's, if, it, if it's lost on you, it's lost on you. Like, it's never gonna, it's, it's never gonna uh, grow, you know? Yeah. And I feel like true fans know that, you know, these moments that may seem, like you said, frivolous to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for us, it's like candy. Yeah. <laughs> because I just remember in season one being an, a fan and saying, like, oh, why can't they just talk to each other? Yeah. And, like, yeah, maybe in season four, they're not quite there yet where they're having deep conversations. But at least they're talking and discussing things and not like yelling at each other yeah i could i could like for example i could picture lorelei and rory having the anvil debate on their own and now now and now they've like brought their own their own version of table talk to friday night dinner which is not something they would have done in season one exactly so i just i love these moments that again like you said seem like very insignificant but in reality they tell us a lot more about the characters than you know bigger plot scenes plot points plot scenes (laughs) and yes i would and i would also stress again i think that's part of uh gilmore Girls' secret weapon is that they they get you and they they get you when you least expect it absolutely so richard announces that he's acquiring bob bob (laughs) just bob um you know when the girls are kind of teasing richard and emily's laughing yeah i think i was like fuck you richard (laughs) (laughs) She's secretly loving it for sure. That's what I'm getting at. Um, But yeah, so they go to the golf course with Bob, Jason, Richard, and Bob, and Floyd, which is a terrible name, by the way. Mm. Floyd, Jason's father, approaches them and kind of finagles his way into the dinner, the Friday night dinner. Yes. Um, And both men seem to think that this is a good thing and that he wants pizza. Um, Okay. Yeah, I don't know. They speak their own, like, rich person language, I guess. Because mm-hmm. even Emily's like, well, what did he say? I'm like, Jesus, Emily. But yeah, so, I don't know. <laughs> um, all that to say is that it's a dinner that certainly has a lot of implications. Mm-hmm. Not just for Lorelai and Jason, but for Emily and Richard as well. Yeah. So... Um, I don't know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> so I say that I think I wrote my notes just Jason's mom because I was blanking on her name, but her name is Carol. Yeah. Um, would you agree that Carol is the definition of two-faced? Yes. Because like I on again I honestly I, I didn't forget I knew what was happening at the end of Friday Night Dinner, but I forgot that like it was just boom like that and there was a an ugly scene and it was over yeah i you know so i was watching thinking like oh you know it's sweet that you know uh carol is so into the dinner and she's she and emily are having a nice little 
camaraderie and then I'm like oh wait that bitch (laughs) yeah it was um so I think the whole thing was very hard to watch from beginning to end because from the moment that Richard and Jane get like you can't even call it an invitation (laughs) but from the moment that they get word that he wants to come over and they're planning this dinner it's like they're going in to it thinking like he wants to make peace he wants to come to some kind of agreement or like he respects us enough you know as a small business to say like let's put let's let bygones be bygones you know yeah so even when they're preparing on the patio and like jason's saying they keep moving things back and forth you know and um Lorelai and Roy are there. They're just very hopeful. Like, is this bar card in the right place? I have to get that gin that he likes. You know, it's it's hard to watch it go from that mm-hmm. to what it ends. With. Um, yeah, it's just a it's a mess. Um, but I I did note that I think Jason, especially on the scenes on the patio. Mm-hmm. I think Jason, it's becoming more clear, has the humor that best matches Laura. And he can keep up with her beautifully. Yeah, but, you know, he's not Luke, and he's too short, and he has stupid suits. Oh, shut the fuck up. Um, <laughs> no, because we often see comments about how, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but we often see comments about how, of course, Lorelai and Luke are endgame and they're meant to be, but in terms of, like, wit and sarcasm, Christopher was the best for her. Ugh. You've seen those, right? Oh, I've seen them, and I sharply look away. Yeah, but, like, I would argue that that's Jason. <laughs> because yeah. that whole conversation that they're having with his father, where he's like, oh, crater face, whatever his name is, and clubfoot Cindy, and, like, you know, I'm like, this is Lorelai in male form. Yeah, there's no other boyfriend of Lorelai's that could keep up with her in that sense. Like, not oh. saying, again, I'm not a believer in Luke and Lorelai's endgame. I am firmly on that ship, as hopefully all of you are. Any Christopher fans are probably long gone. But um, I think, as we've said many times this season, Jason and Lorelai just had a, a rapport that no, no other partner of Lorelai's had like it's they weren't they weren't meant to be together long term you can tell that but just in terms of like you want to compare it to Max like everybody like everybody on Instagram was just so much more for Lorelai and Max and I just don't understand that but I don't get it either no um and another thing I wanted um while they're having dinner and the the styles is are passing around pictures of their grandson Lorelai looks at Jason and he's like, oh, I believe that's you holding your nephew very lovingly and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I just find this so interesting. I think that the writers knew what they were doing. I find it so interesting that this episode started with Luke being like, fuck these kids. Yeah. To then going to Jason, who's like, father material. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, that was definitely deliberate. Yeah, they knew what they were fucking doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, Amy, shut up. <laughs> anyways uh yeah they knew what they were doing so overall the evening itself the dinner goes well pictures brandy everyone's getting along and then floyd drops a bomb that he's suing jason and richard okay but what kind of 
I don't even have the word. I was gonna say bitch, but like bitch is not even not even fitting. Sociopath. Yeah, I don't know. Like, what kind of person goes to another person's house for a nice dinner and then be like, by the way, I'm suing you. Bye bye. Yeah, but not only that, it's what kind of person like gets a dinner invitation, squeezes a dinner invitation out of a man by using his wife. Because if you remember, Floyd was like, oh, Emily and Carol were inseparable, you know? Yeah. And then, like, by the way, tells his wife that this is what he's going to do because Carol's not at all surprised, right? Oh, Carol knew it was coming. So I was like, two-faced lady. (laughs) Lady. (laughs) But, like, and then, to me, I can't even wrap my mind around the fact that you're suing your son. Mm -hmm. I don't get it. I was going to ask you, like, do you think Jason deserves being ousted? No. Like, I, like, I don't know. I've, I figured that you would have a a much more, a much deeper opinion than no. <laughs> no. So what do you mean? So, okay, well, let's, let's, let's do it chronologically, I guess. So Floyd announces that he's suing them and Richard and Jason are obviously like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. And Jason's saying, like, I didn't break my contract. I know the guy socially. I didn't take any of your clients. And you basically just find out that Floyd is doing this out of spite. Yeah. Because, what, he can't stand to see his son doing well somewhere else? And he can't stand that Richard, who used to work for him, is now successful? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what has to happen in your life that you, you see your son succeeding. And you're like that little bitch. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't <laughs> I know my family and I don't have the best dynamic, but I don't understand that. Um, I don't get that. Yeah, I just thought the whole thing was a little bit, um, like, such a blow to Richard. Yeah. Because not only does this guy come into his house and is suing him, but then he's like, oh, well, I know that you put your pension up for collateral, as collateral, mm-hmm. which Emily clearly didn't know. Right. And he's like... And by the way, I think the the cherry on top for him was like, oh, well, I know that your son, my son is dating your daughter. And Richard's like, oh, that's one more thing that this fucker knows that I don't. You know what I mean? Exactly. The whole, whole thing was just so, I like, you could tell Richard was very embarrassed. Yeah. Um, And you can tell that Emily, who was already worried about Richard not being 100% honest with her because of the Pendleton lot thing and because he's moved to professional life. Mm-hmm. Then finds out that not only is my husband keeping things for me, my daughter is also keeping things for me. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel bad for Emily again in this scenario, as so many, as so many scenarios before, because it's just like standing there like, oh, we're having a nice evening, but every nice evening has to be ruined here, doesn't it? Yeah. Can you imagine her? Like, she just, she thinks she's getting her friend back after all this time. She thinks everything's going to be okay with her husband's business because this guy wants peace. And now all of a sudden she's finding out that, like, they're practically broke. Well, not broke, but, you know, putting your pension up as collateral is not nothing, right? Yeah. Um, And that your daughter who you know, you've been having pretty good conversations with, consoled you has yeah. been being, has been keeping a really big secret from you. So it wasn't a great night for Emily. 
Um, no, and I felt I just felt like you could you could like hear a pin drop as she and Laura are just like staring at each other. She's like she's like you can you don't have to say you can go now. She's like I'm blocked in. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and then she just goes upstairs. She's like I'm not fucking dealing with this, you know. Oh well. Um. Fuck you. Bye bye. Yeah, like get the fuck out of her house. <laughs> um. I was like, what the fuck did you think was gonna happen? Yeah, I'm sorry. Like Lorelai, Lorelai knew that that would come back to bite her in the ass one way or another. Yeah, but it always amazes me how Lorelai is like the last to realize that her actions are shitty. Yeah. <laughs> like remember, even when she didn't tell Emily that, about getting engaged, mm-hmm. and she was like, "Oh no, who could have foreseen these events? Everyone, you <laughs> fucking loser." Ugh, yeah. Anyways, it's just very, uh, it's very frustrating. It is. Um, and then the scene where Emily goes outside with Richard drinking, and she's like, "Are we gonna be okay? Are we in trouble?" She says, and he's like, "Everything's gonna be okay." You have to kind of think that Emily's head is spinning right now. <laughs> yeah, I think she also feels. I think she feels stupid. Like she felt stupid. Yeah. Earlier in this season with all the Penelope Lot business, and then. <laughs> Especially at the beginning of season five <laughs> um, for that, uh, you know, iconic scene in the basement. Right. Um, but I think in this, I think in season four, throughout season four, she is just, she's feeling stupid. Not, not like re- regretting her actions of, you know, being the wife and the, you know, her husband's party planner. She's not right. regretting, she's not regretting any of that, but she's like, she's regretting She's, I think she's regretting like the role society forced her in, and that like she 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 feels stupid, and she like she hates that she feels stupid because like that's her role. Like she her role is to not know anything, and therefore she feels stupid, and she looks stupid, and she hates that her husband keeps putting her in that place. Yeah, I think that's what it like. That's that is a lot of it. She hates that her husband keeps putting her in these scenarios where she's meant to feel stupid. Yeah, you know. Like, with the letter, with the party, with not going to her best friend's funeral. Like, you know, it's just, it's a lot. It's it's, it's piling up at this point. Yeah. And she's like, I I was just embarrassed in my own home again. You know what I mean? Like, it's, mm. it's not a good time to be Emily. <laughs> no, it's really not. <laughs> and then the last scene of the episode is where we see that Richard and Floyd have made a deal. Yeah. To um, basically get rid of this lawsuit by having Richard go back to working for Floyd, but under his own company with Bob. 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 Fuck Bob. <laughs> and, and then um, basically pushing Jason out and leaving him with nothing. Yeah. Um, that's, so that's where my question came from. Do you think right. Jason deserves being ousted like that? So I think that after the conversation where basically Jason goes to Richard and is like, well, I can talk to my father. I know my father. I know why he's doing this. Like, and he's trying to reassure him and he's telling him, you know, Richard, I, I, I went into business with you because I wanted to be with the best. And you can tell that he, they generally like each other. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's a genuine friendship. So I think that Richard doing what he did after Jason after basically giving Jason his blessing to go and take care of it mm-hmm. was was the sneaky part for me. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a sneaky situation. That's a good word for it. Because you know that... You know that Richard is pissed and that Richard doesn't want to obviously lose, uh, you know, I say his life savings. I don't think it's I don't think it's as deep as that. But you know that Emily is scared and there's a lot of money, Gilmore money tied up in this venture. Right. So you know that Richard is looking out for, in you know, his family and his finances. Yeah. But at a certain point, what like why would you sacrifice what you built with Jason? just to save your own ass like are you like is he saving his own ass is, does he not care about like what did jason do to deserve being like and jason is out like what yeah so for me it's more like obviously we're gonna get more of the explanation in the next episode mm-hmm. but i saw richard you know that scene where he's in on the patio and kind of looking staring out into nothing and drinking to me that scene was really telling because you can tell he's worried yeah So obviously there's a lot of money tied into this. And then Emily coming out and saying, are we in trouble? You know, for me, he kind of went into survival mode of like, I have to do anything I can to keep, keep whatever it is, like not lose anything basically. Yeah. And I understand the need to do that, to be protective of your family and your company and what you've earned. But the, like, it just, it, it still doesn't sit right with me. After basically telling Jason, like, yes, go, I have faith in you. I know you can make this blow. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, exactly. Like, I think give the kid the opportunity to go and do that. Mm -hmm. And then if it really doesn't work and Floyd's not backing down, then you're like, well, now I have no choice. You know what I mean? It's just the whole thing was just a sneaky mess. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you were saying before about how you don't understand. Um, the, do you understand the Styles family dynamic of, hey, congratulations, psych, you suck. Like, yeah, basically. Oh, I don't God. get it either. And, and we, I, I know we do get more insight in the later in the next few episodes, but just, yeah. it's just, it's, it's when you look at what, like when you look at the whole show with with a magnifying glass, like things like this, just pop out. Like I was, like I was texting you about this morning. It's yeah. just weird little thing. It's like wait a minute (laughs) yeah no i don't hold the phone i don't know i don't know what it is (laughs) i don't um it's really really weird well hopefully we will have a more concise conclusion to our argument with that uh next week yeah because this i mean it's left open-ended on purpose so for we'll sure, leave, yeah. It's we'll just, leave ours open-ended. <laughs> can I just say, I also remember watching this episode live. Do you? And I remember being very, very shocked <laughs> at the at the last scene. Really? Yeah, because I remember thinking, like, because up until that point, we sense that Richard's a man of honor and he's a man of his word. Mm-hmm. So for me, then having him go behind Jason's back and cut a deal to cut him out, to me, it was, like, very... Well, well A, it showed how desperate he must be. Mm-hmm. And, and, B, it was just so out of character for me that I was like, Richard, I don't think I can forgive you. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to say. Like, it was just... It was it was so... It was... And, again, like, like you said, we're going to be... We're going to see the fallout, you know, later in the later episodes but it's just um i don't know it's a lot to take in 
yeah or it like remains to be seen you're not sure what direction it's gonna go in like we know obviously but yeah obviously we know it's uh you know and it's a cliffhanger but not like a a deadly one (laughs) yeah it's not no i just shocked was maybe the wrong word i just remember being like fuck you richard how dare you yeah exactly because it was already pretty dramatic enough the way it ended right yeah. If there wasn't that final scene and it was it had just ended the way it ended, you're like, oh my god, what's gonna happen? Is he gonna lose his pension? And then you add that and you're like, oh my fuck. Yeah. So I don't know. And next episode is uh, called the After Boom, which is pretty uh, on point. <laughs> what yeah. did you say? Self-explanatory. <laughs> exactly. Well, Jeffrey, I think that's it for this week. I think it is. I actually wanted to give both a PSA and a shout out before we sign off for this week. Um, my PSA is um, I received my second dose of the COVID-19 vaccine earlier this week. Um, yes. <laughs> so I guess you could say I'm fully vaccinated now. Um, just wanted to, you know, send out a little message if anybody's hesitant or scared, you're looking for a, a reason, a sign to get the vaccine you know, please take this as that. Just, you know, you can go ahead and do it. It's, I did, I did get all the side effects on the list for the second dose as they, uh, you know, advise can happen. Um, but it's really not that bad. Like you feel sick without really feeling sick and it's gone within a day. So if you're nervous, anxious, anything of that sort about the side effects, trust me, it's really worth it. If, like, there's a lot of misinformation about the vaccines going around. So if all you need to hear today is, it's it's really fine. Like don't worry about it. It's take this as that and please go and get your vaccines. And would you agree? <laughs> Absolutely. I've been fully vaccinated since uh May. Yes. May eleventh. I was lucky enough not to get any side effects. Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> fuck me. Yeah. Um actually everyone in my nobody in my office got side effects, which is really weird. But, neither my neither my parents did either, so I was hopeful. Yeah. So you know, it affects everyone's differently um the people that i do know that i got that got side effects um like you said they just lasted a day and it was okay um and look it's much better than getting covid right <laughs> Literally, like if like if this what if this is what it takes for me to be quote-unquote fully protected then i'll take it like exactly and i wanted to give a shout out to um one of our listeners uh tiff or uh, as her twitter name display is sad narwhal i I'm notoriously bad at keeping up on our DMs on social media, as Lenny knows. So I just recently read the message she sent us on Twitter um, a couple months ago or a month a month and a half ago, I think, um, just saying how much she appreciates our podcast and how Lenny's voice reminds her of a friend she lost to cancer in high school and that... Uh, that touched me, even though it's not my voice, it's Eleni's voice. But I just did. I know, but I was really touched as well. Yeah, it's just been, like I don't know. To me, it's never never ceases to be just flooring that people, uh, like all of you who are listening, just uh, you know, our words resonate so much with you, and all we do is yell at each other, and our in, uh, it's very unstructured analysis, and it resonates with you, and that's just amazing. So, thank you for all the messages like that that we do receive. Yeah, they're really great, honestly. (laughs) I think that's it for this week. Yes. Jeffrey, where can they find us? 
Um, they can. Oh, by the way, one last thing for this week. The thing that fell off the wall when I was talking early in the episode was my Shania Twain uh, pop vinyl figure. Just FYI. <laughs> You're just gonna die. Yeah. What? <laughs> no. You said yeah, and then wait, what? <laughs> You're so funny. Um, they can follow us on Twitters at Gilmore Podcast, on Instagram at Gilmore Girls Podcast. And you can email us, should you feel the need, gilmorepodcast at gmail.com. And that's all for this week. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.